Um, I don't know. There's so many announcements. I better just be quiet. But uh, let me just give you a little bit of heads up about what we're going to talk about tonight. We're going we're to talk about um, Nehemiah uh, after we worship. We're going to pray and let the kids go uh, if they want to go back uh, with their teachers and stuff. But um, let, me, let me just talk a little bit about what we're going to talk about tonight. So we're going through the books, books uh, that go together, and they are Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. And Esther actually occurs between the sixth and seventh chapter of, um, of uh, Ezra. But l- let me just tell you something, uh, just a precursor. Ezra means helper. The Holy Spirit is the helper. We believe in one God and three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Not three gods in one. One God and three persons. And Ezra, the first one, means helper. That's the same name as the Holy Spirit. Nehemiah's name means comforter. Again, same name as the Holy Spirit uh, in John 16, 13. Uh, And... uh, uh, Esther, uh, in, in one sense, they can't really translate the name, but it means can be a, a star or can mean hidden, uh, can be hidden. And that will be apparent when we uh, talk about those books uh, coming up. Uh, but uh, let's think about this. Three areas of the Holy, of the Holy Spirit or, and the Holy Spirit's work. Ezra is the rebuilding of the temple Nehemiah is the rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem, and Esther is the preserving of a people in Babylon, the Jewish people. Now, don't be confused. I'm going to try and connect the dots. But here's kind of an outline of what we've been doing over the last couple months. You see, the Holy Spirit used to, the Spirit of God used to, in the Old Testament, reside in the temple in Jerusalem. But the Bible in the New Testament says that the Holy Spirit resides in his people. That's you and us, those who surrender their life to Christ. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, comes to live in your life. And so Ezra represents a reestablishment of the spiritual. Why? Because, listen, the temple is rebuilt. Are you getting this now? Second... We're going to see tonight, Nehemiah, we see in the cap, starts in the capital city. We talk about, when we start reading the first chapter here, it says that some of it takes place in the capital city. And then, of course, Jerusalem is the capital. That's like the seat of government. Now, just hang on with me for a minute. This is going to make sense, I hope. See, because in Thessalonians, the Bible tells us we're made of body, soul, and spirit. And this book, the first one, Ezra, is about the spiritual. The spirituals reestablished the temple. Second, the book, Nehemiah, is talking about a reestablishment or a rebuilding of the capital and all its walls and gates. And that is a picture not of salvation, which is Ezra. Come on, just hang with me for a minute but of sanctification, even a surrendering of all that we are in our soul. And what are we in our soul? Our body, 
or excuse me, our mind, our will, and our emotions. Our mind, our intellect, how we relate to people, our will. You know, if I wanted to walk to the back of the fellowship hall, I'd have to will it, say I'm in my mind, I'm going to go do it, and then I'd go do it. And then our emotions, the way in which we emote and relate. Now listen, what am I talking about here? Listen, the book of Ezra is a picture of salvation born by the Holy Spirit. The temple is reestablished. We're the temple of the Holy Spirit. Nehemiah is a picture of sanctification, that process by which the walls are built back up or built up and defenses are put up in, around the temple, the walls around the temple, the spiritual, so that we're, listen, thriving, victorious in the Christian life, and it's by the Holy Spirit. And then third, Esther, remember, Esther is not talking about the Jews who are in Jerusalem anymore. It's talking about the Jews who are up in Babylon, and they get preserved. And let me read you something, and then we'll pray. This is my precursor to tonight. In Romans 8:11, listen to this. Did you know this? You probably did. In Romans 8:11, it says this. But of the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. If you've surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, the Bible says that the minute you do that, you count on him and his finished work at the cross and his resurrection. Listen to what happens. The Spirit of God comes to reside in you. It says it right here. He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your, listen, listen, mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So what I'm trying to tell you is the saving of God that he does encompasses all of us. You, you see that? Our spirit, our soul, and our body. Yes, we live in tents now that are going to wear out, but the Bible tells us that we, all Christian denominations, or I should say most Orthodox Christian denominations believe this. This isn't something just here. This is it. Is that we're going, maybe we die physically before the Lord comes back, if we die before the Lord comes back, but we're going to get a glorified, resurrected body. And there you have Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. Isn't that amazing? So I'm going to pray. Actually, let's just uh, bow our heads and hearts, get ready to receive what the Lord wants to do here tonight, and then, um, and then these two will uh, lead us into uh, worship, and then I'll come up and pray, and uh, we'll have a time of fellowship for about five minutes, and then we'll get into the teaching. So let's just bow our heads and our hearts. Oh, there we go. There we go. Hey, if you don't have a Bible, get, grab a Bible if you need one. There, John will get you one from the back. John, raise your hand and uh, turn, and it doesn't matter. Just use the table of contents. No big deal. We're in the Old Testament. Now listen, I'm going to tell you this because this is going to help you. Because I didn't know this. So when I started reading, nobody in my family was a Christian. So when I started reading the Bible, I did not know this. I'm not ashamed to admit and that's this. In the Old Testament, the years run from high to low. Are you catching me? 
don't, don't forget that. In the Old Testament, the, as the years progress, you go from 1,000 to 999 to 998, etc., down to zero. And then in the New Testament, now on this side, on, on the New Testament now, and that's the era we're in, you go from zero to one to two. I'm telling you, I didn't know that uh, when I first began reading the Bible. And I'm going to spew off some numbers here because if you don't understand the history of about what we're about ready to read, you'll never understand the book. So I hope that this makes sense. Hang in there with me. The early part of the Bible, first five books of the Bible, is God's attempt I shouldn't say it. Well, it is his attempt to establish this relationship with mankind and a way in which man could come and worship him through the sacrifices and all of that sort of thing. And guess what? He picked a country, a people. He picked the Israelis, the Jews. And they didn't listen to him. <laughs> And it was really a sad deal. They didn't listen. They didn't do what he asked. And so there were these prophecies. There were these prophecies. Can you believe it? That God was going to use a nation that was not a God-fearing nation, and he was going to punish his people, the Israelis, the Jews. And these prophecies said that God was going to use pagan nations and take the Jews from where they lived in the land of Canaan and take them to the land of Babylon. And Babylon in the Bible always represents evil, sin, darkness, and idol worship. And so they were doing these things in rebellion against God. So God took them by the Babylonians and put them up in Babylon. And he did so in three waves. Around 606 B.C. and then another wave and then listen, this is the most important one, 586 B.C. You got to know that. If you don't know 586 B.C., I don't know how you'll understand the Old Testament. Because in 586 B.C., God used the Babylonians to exile the Jews. He took, they took um, everyone who was like the cream of the crop, and they left the old and diseased back there. Not that God... Uh, Anyway, that's who he left there. They took the cream and the crop. And in 586 B.C., they wrecked Jerusalem, including the temple in Jerusalem where they worshiped. If you don't know that, you, Nehemiah will never make any sense to you. And the prophecy was that they would be in Babylon for 70 years. It's a whole other story. I'm not going to tell you tonight why, but because I'll get off into a rabbit trail. But after 70 years then, there were, remember I said there were three waves of exile, but after 70 years, God was true to his promise, and a first wave of exiles came back from Babylon to Jerusalem, and who led him? What was the name of the guy? Zerubbabel and Joshua. Zerubbabel was the governor, Joshua was the high priest. That's the first wave. And then... That was about 50,000 out of 2 million people came back. Then Ezra brings the second wave of, of Jewish exiles from Babylon back to Jerusalem. That's the book of Ezra. The final, you know, that's the book of Ezra. And now we're into Nehemiah. This third wave 
of exiles coming back from Babylon into Jerusalem or Israel. Everybody tracking with me so far? And I gave you a little precursor here. I want you to know this. The Old Testament of which we're studying now, it did happen. It's real history. But it's also, the Bible tells us in the New Testament, pictures and types of the reality of who Jesus is and how he relates to his people. You tracking with me? And so, I want you to see this. There's a thing called salvation, being saved from our sins and from eternal damnation. That's called salvation. And Ezra is that book. Why? How do I know that? Because in Ezra, he only came back, and the only thing that they did was build the temple. They didn't build the walls and the gates around it. They only built the temple. But the New Testament tells us To us, we're the temple. So Ezra is a picture of salvation. And remember, Ezra means helper. And in John, we know, John 16, verse 13, the word for the Holy Spirit is helper or comforter. And it's with a word in the Greek called paraclete, come alongside. Helper or comforter. Isn't that interesting? Because Ezra means helper, but Nehemiah means comforter. (laughs) So Nehemiah then is a picture, or is this wave of people coming back from exile. Nehemiah is the helper. It's by the Holy Spirit to reestablish the walls and the gates, to build back the city. And remember, I told you at the beginning, what is that a picture of for us? The Bible tells us in Thessalonians that we're made up of body, here it is, soul, your mind, your will to do something, and your emotions. You know what your emotions are. Your soul relates to other people, you see. And when these get out of whack, mind, anybody ever have your mind out of whack in a low place, right? Or your will, just you don't even feel like doing anything. Or your emotions get out of whack, right? So that's this, it's a, and the Bible calls this process of this healing, so to speak, and this becoming more Christ-like, I do it like this, because it's going towards Christ. When you submit not only your spiritual life, Ezra, to the Lord, and you, the, Bible, or you, uh, the Holy Spirit comes into your life, but when you now participate in sanctification, you give over your whole being, everything you are to the Lord, even your mind and your thought life, take all your thoughts captive for Christ, right? Your will, the Bible just is full of it, that you're going to take up your cross daily, the Bible says. So you, the sweetness of life, listen to this, The health of life, the sweetness of life only comes when you recognize that you were made to serve the Lord and that when you take up a cross, that's the death penalty back then, you're saying no to the self-life and yes to God's filling life of you and that's where the beauty of life comes. But people walk around their whole life and they don't know that, just what we talked about. And so they might even go to church and give money and you know kneel and pray or something, but they don't know I didn't know for a long time that we're to give everything over, including our self-life, over to the Lord and have him substitute myself 
for his self into my life. And that's where the beauty happens. And then our emotions follow, right? David was, wrote these psalms. And sometimes his emotions betrayed him, and so to speak. They were against what the word of God would be. But David preached to himself, and his emotions followed. Isn't that interesting? Okay. So we are now at Nehemiah. In the book... Ezra has already happened. The temple's being reestablished from exile. Forget the dates right now if you, the dates are hurting your head. <laughs> but out of exile have come the Jews. They've rebuilt built the temple. In the second wave, Ezra, there was a first wave of 50,000, a second wave of 1,500, and now Nehemiah is going to bring a third wave. Okay? And that's where we start. All right? And if you have any questions, you... Come up after, and we'll see if we can clear them up. I even did some handouts for Ezra, and if you don't have those handouts, see me after. I'll email them to you. Have them so you can remember this stuff. Okay, here we go. Go with me to Nehemiah 1. <clears throat> what does Nehemiah mean again? Yeah, comforter. So here you go. See, I'm just trying to prepare you. When you read this, you go, oh, wait a minute. The words of Nehemiah. Wow the son of Hakaliah. We know nothing about Hakaliah in the Bible other than he's here. But we do know that his name means comforter or festive or festival. It came to pass in the month of Chislev. You, you don't know that month, but to us that month is November, December. And that's going to be important here for a in a minute. That's why I told it to you. In the 20th year, while I was in Shushan, the citadel, like the capital city of Persia, or Babylon. <laughs> See, in Babylon, Babylon got overtaken by the Persians. That's why I'm saying Persia. That's one other thing you got to remember. But you're getting the point. Some people believe this is the capital city, like the capital city. Other people believe this is the beach town where these people, the highfalutin people, would go from Persia during the winter months, and that this was like the the capital in the winter, but whatever, it's the capital, the citadel, that Hananiah, one of my brother, came with men from Judah. Now listen to what's happening. Here he is, Nehemiah. He's up in Babylon. He's not in Jerusalem. Everybody okay with that? He's still there. He never went back in the first wave. He never went back in the second wave. He stayed in Jerusalem, or excuse me, stayed in Babylon, which Babylon by now is ruled by the Persians. Don't get mixed up. They're ruled by the Persians. And he's there. And these people, his brothers, came back from Judah. And Judah is southern Israel. So in other words, this party came back into the capital city. And Nehemiah asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem, and they said to me, they said to Nehemiah, and because it's written in the first person, almost everybody believes that Nehemiah wrote this, okay? You see it right there. They said to me, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the providence, in other words, the ones who are left down in Jerusalem, the, the report we're getting from Jerusalem is that they're in great distress and reproach. Why? Because the wall of Jerusalem is also broken down and its gates are burned with fire. Now, what do walls and gates signify? It doesn't take a rock. Even I can figure this out. They signify protection, security, and stability. 
right? What's in the center of the city? The temple, where the Spirit of God resides. What's in the, for those who are in Christ, what's down in the core of our being? The Holy Spirit of God resides here. That's what the Bible says, not me. The Bible says that we are now the temple of God, those who surrender their life to Christ. And it's not some weird thing, it's just that the Holy Spirit of God lives in his people. The Holy Spirit of God doesn't live in a building now. He lives in people. And you're the people if you surrendered your life to Christ. But the walls were broken, and they, people are in distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. Listen to this. So when Nehemiah the Comforter hears about this, and remember, he's never been to his homeland He's stayed back. It's not like he's been there and missing it. And yet, these people, his brothers come back, the people of Israel, the Jewish people come back, and when he heard these words, that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. Now, look at this. We're going to talk about tonight a story of new beginnings. Many people in the church are saying, my life's a mess. How come I don't live the victorious Christian life? How do you walk, not me, but you know, somebody. How do you walk around with a smile and just have so much joy in your life? And I don't. And yet I've surrendered my life to Christ. The Holy Spirit has come in. But see, many people's seated government are a mess and are in ruins. Their mind, their will, their emotions. You remember uh, in the Old Testament when the Jews came out of the Exodus, they exited and they had to go to the Red Sea and what happened with the Red Sea? It had to close behind them as if the world was closing off. Then they get right up to the border of, of the land of Canaan and they're asked to go in and they hesitate. Remember this? And, and then, you know, you know all that story and then when they go in, God tells them there's still some people, little pockets of people in the city. You got to go in there and fight and knock them out of there and then take the city. And what do they do? They are disobedient. You see, that's a picture of people who live the Christian life or are saved but don't have a victorious Christian life. They don't enter in fully into the things of God. And this is the same thing here in Nehemiah. Nehemiah is talking about the temple has been established, and yet your life is still in ruins. That's the story of the Christian church in America. Our life are, is in ruins. People make, you know, um, New Year's resolutions, and nobody can keep them. We have besetting sins. There's alcohol and pornography and tobacco and uh, uh, gambling and, and uh, you know, adultery and uh, lust and, uh, you, you know, uh, gossip and uh, just go on and on and on and on. Unkindness, anger issues, and, um, uh, you know, anxieties and fears. And it wrecks the people of God. And Nehemiah is the book that shows us the pattern of coming out of that to a life that's rebuilt. You see that? 
But I want you to see something first. It's all centered around the Spirit of God in the temple. That must be established first. You must surrender your life to Jesus Christ or none of this applies. You must count on, how do you say, well, how do you surrender your life to Jesus Christ? You recognize you're a sinner. I mean, come on, folks. Some of the things that have gone on in my life or through my head, he whiz. I am a sinner, and so are you. The Bible says it. We must recognize we're a sinner. We must repent of our sins, saying, repent. What's that, some crazy word from the born-again 70s? No, I mean, it's the word of the Bible, and all it means is you, you walk away from the self-life or the life of sin, and you walk towards God. That's repent. And you just say, Lord, I'm just going to walk towards you and whatever you have for me, and you count on the finished work of the cross and his resurrection so that if anybody ever said, you think you're going to heaven, you could go, yep. But you don't say it cocky. You say it like this. Yes, praise the Lord because of the finished work of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. He's paid for the penalty of my sins. He's paid the power over my sins and taken that away. And he's given me new life. Okay, so if that's you, the, the Holy Spirit has come into your life. But now our lives are still in ruins and the walls aren't built, and there's these things, and Nehemiah's showing you this, and the first thing, look at this. The first thing that you see and you recognize about Nehemiah, and this is important, it's so elementary, but it gets me so excited, and it just breaks my heart because I wonder if I'm there. Nehemiah cares. If I lived up in Babylon and my brothers who I didn't even know, I mean, just these guys came from Jerusalem, and they started talking about this faraway land that I was kind of supposed to know about, I'm just going to be, you know, frank with you. I'm not so sure I'd really care. But he does. And you know what the Bible says? You know this with David and his family and Goliath. God doesn't look on the outward appearance. He looks at the heart. And in fact, there's plenty of scriptures that say that God's looking through the earth, looking for people. I'm going to say it my way. God says looking at the heart of people. He's looking for people who care. Nehemiah cares. What would make this guy care? Here he is. He's okay. He's comfortable. In fact, in the last verse of this chapter, we're going to see, I haven't said it yet, he's really important in this kingdom, in the Persian kingdom. And he's not a Persian. Okay, but whatever. He says, it sat down and wept, and I mourned for any days. Before God is going to use a person, he's going to do something in that person first. And here you go. The Bible says, I think, there's this pattern for rebuilding our lives. And the first thing is, do you care? If, if you don't care, you're just going to go about your life the same as it's always been. But if you care, you're going to talk to the Lord. You'll pray. You'll, you'll fast and pray even. It'll be something of great spiritual concern to you. It'll be bothering you. You'll say, Lord, I want to live everything that you have for me. And so I recognize that there are these things in my life that are broken down. My thought life, my actions, I'm not experienced this 
full Christian life. I don't know, maybe my marriage is a mess. Maybe my family's a mess. Maybe my uh, work is a mess. Maybe my uh, relationship with my work or coworkers is a mess. Maybe with my friends is just in, you know, whatever. And the walls are all broken down and I feel cruddy inside. Isn't that explain, you know, uh, described lots of us, right? See, I'm not criticizing anybody about that. I'm saying here the Lord is saying, The first step is to recognize it and to care and to seek out what is the healthiest and best way to rebuild the walls. And the number one thing he says, I I think the Bible says here, is pray. And you say, wait a minute, pray? Like, like, do I have to get the valley of vision or do I have to get a prayer? No, 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 no. Look Look at his prayer. Just you're great and awesome, God. His prayer is really not that long. It's a great prayer. It's one of the great prayers of the Bible. But it's not that long. And he just talks to God. That's what praying is. It's just talking to God, talking to the Lord. Lord, look what's a mess. The walls are down. Here's what he says. You're awesome. That's a great prescription for prayer. Start with the character of God. You're awesome, God. So you need to know God. And listen, God, you keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you. Did you know that? Know that in your heart that God keeps his covenant. That's a contract. He keeps his word with those he loves. You and observe your commandments. Please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now day and night for the children of Israel, your servants. And a great praying person prays for himself, but also prays for the people of God. You see that? And he confesses the sins of the children of Israel. This is interesting. He's been up in Babylon, but he's including himself as a Jewish person in the sins of the people who have returned. And, you know, some of them are still there in exile. But you get that? My tendency would be, Lord, I I pray for those uh, wicked people, those wicked people who don't listen to you. I I pray for them, and I know you want to do a great work in them. Not, Not Nehemiah. Nehemiah says, we all have sinned against you. My people. Man, that's a great way to pray for our country. Well, here, here he talks to God, and he says, listen, I confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned. So, so care, and then pray, and in our prayers, confess. So, so how does this apply to you? Look at this. Here he's talking about the sins of a nation, but it's the same principle for you and I. What happens when we're asking the Lord to propel us down the path of sanctification. All sanctification means is set-apartness and more like Christ. And the Bible says that's what we're to be with our mind, will, and emotions. How does it happen with us? Well, we confess our sins. You understand this. Americans have a terrible habit of avoiding their sins or justifying their sins or excusing their sins. Like, come on, man, I'm Irish. I have an anger problem. Oh, come on, it makes me feel better at night. And you can just add what that is in a lot of places. I deserve it. I need a little break every once in a while. That's what we say. Instead of, I think what God is telling us here is come face to face and express and don't justify and say just exactly what it is that's, that's broken down in your life and don't excuse it. Don't excuse it. And so he says, both my father's house and I have sinned. Confess and then repent. 
And look at this. We have acted very corruptly against you, have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded. Remember, I told you that the first five books of the Bible were the commandments of uh, God written through Moses. Remember, I pray, the word that you commanded your servant Moses, if you were unfaithful. And by the way, here's what he's doing right here. Just know this. uh, Nehemiah right now is quoting scripture from Deuteronomy, Leviticus, Exodus. He's quoting scripture. He's quoting back to God what God promised. What a great way to pray. So here, how do we rebuild our life? We care. We have concern about the things of our life. We just don't go status quo. But we don't turn to the things of the world. We turn to God. We pray. We confess our sins. We repent of our sins. And we don't justify it. Remember in the Garden of Eden, God asked them, hey, now, did you eat of the fruit? That always cracks me up because God knew they, eat, they ate the fruit. Come on, God knew, right? It wasn't like he was asking because he didn't know. Why was God asking? Because it's always the healthiest and best to get it out in the open. God always wants us to live in the light Remember, I always say this in the Sermon on the Mount. When somebody accuses you of something, agree with them quickly. You're right. I am a dirty scumbag. But by the grace of God, I am who I am, and I'm a child of the king now. That's, that's how, right? That's how we live. Always live in the light. Don't justify. It's the way to rebuild. And then... Stand on the promises of God. Here he is quoting Moses or he's quoting scripture because God told them, if you're faithful to my commandments, you'll prosper. If not, you'll be sent away. They were sent away. But even in those prophecies that the Lord gave to people, he did say there would be a return out of exile. And so look, Nehemiah is praying the scriptures. In order to pray the scriptures, folks, guess what you have to do? Know them. Okay, so, yet I will gather them from here and bring them to the place which I have chosen uh, as a dwelling for my name. Verse 10, now these are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servant who desire to fear your name and let your servant prosper this day, I pray, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Here it comes, for I was the king's cupbearer. I'm gonna tell you something, folks. If I was writing this, I would have said, Nehemiah, I am the king's cupbearer. That's what I would have said first. And the reason I would have said first is because the king's cupbearer was an important person. The king's cupbearer is the guy who, they didn't assassinate kings back then like this or like this. They put poison in the drink or in the food. And the cupbearer was the guy who tasted the stuff before it went to the king. So there had to be ultimate trust between cupbearer and king. But that leads us to the last point. How do you rebuild your life? The Bible says God gives, listen, listen. God gives grace to the humble but opposes the proud. The proud is self-life. I can do it my way. I don't need God in my life. Uh, yes, I'm a lawyer. Lord, I've been doing this since 1992. I don't really need you to tell me how to do my job today. Ooh, really? It's the self-life. It's to get rid of it. Humility is not de- denigrating yourself. I'm a jerk. I'm bad. 
It's not thinking of yourself at all, and I didn't come up with that. That's a famous way pastors say it. It's not thinking of yourself of all. It's just you're thinking of others. Humility. Then you get God's grace, and here you see it. You see you're rebuilding your life. You care. You talk to God about it, not others. You can talk to others, but primarily to God. You confess. You don't justify. You repent, and you turn toward God, and you plead the promises of God. God, I feel lonely, but you tell me You'll never leave me nor forsake me. God, I don't feel any peace, but you tell me if a mind that stayed on you has perfect peace. I am often in fear of men. I care what people think about me. Perfect love casts out fear, and that word in the Greek is phobia. So here, I just gave you three in 30 seconds, and you guys know them too. Learn the promises and God gives grace to the humble. Okay, chapter two. And it came to pass in the month of Nisan. Why was it so important you knew the first month? Because now four months have transpired from November to December to like March, April-ish. That's what this means. You understand what happened here? Four months of no answer to the prayer. What happens when we go four minutes without an answer to prayer? We freak God, Bible says, be still and know, right? Be still and know that I am God. Just listen for the Lord. The Lord will take you through it. Anyway, he didn't complain. He just waited on the Lord, and it came to pass four months later, in uh, the 20th year of this king who was Artaxerxes, a Persian king, when wine was before him, that I took the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I'd never been sad in the presence of the king. Guess what could happen to a sad cupbearer? They could get their head lopped off. Boom. Because if the king's looking over at your countenance as you're giving the wine, he's like, dude, what, what's wrong with you? Why are you so weird right now? Because I got to drink this and I don't want to die. Did you sub You see it? So there all had to be this ultimate trust. And here, he had never been sad. And the king said to him, why are you sad since you're not sick? There's nothing but sorrow of heart. And so... Nehemiah says, well, I was afraid, and said to the king, hey, may the king live forever. Now, Nehemiah's got a great way of being tactful. You know, folks, we can be truthful and tactful at the same time. We got a lot of people in the Christian life just, you know, shotgun blasting. Here, Nehemiah's really tactful. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, he did something really interesting. See, a Persian king doesn't really care about Jerusalem. But a Persian king cares about dead people and families. <laughs> That's really important to the ancient kings because they always wanted to keep their name alive so they were into genealogy and that sort of thing. And so Nehemiah knows it. And he says, why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs? He does it on purpose. He's respectful for the dead. He doesn't talk about primarily the ruins, but he talks also about the tombs, lies waste, and its gates are burned. And then the king said, what do you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Remember, this guy's important to the king. 
And he's asking to go 900 miles away. How long he's going to be there, we don't know. The king said to me, the queen also sitting beside him, some people believe that's Esther. I don't think it's Esther. Other people believe it's Esther's um, uh, uh, relatives who are older, you know, like mother, you understand, that have gone, uh, no, younger, there we go, younger, <laughs> who have, uh, 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 you know, gone on and been the queen. But anyway, that's something for conjecture. How long will your journey be and will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I sent him a time. So he asked for his permission, he asked for sufficient time, and then I said to the king, let letters be given to me for the governors of the region. So guess what he's asking for? That they may permit me to pass till I come to Judah. He's asking for protection. You see this? And he sends a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the forest, that he must give timber to make beams, and he's asking for provision. Are you catching what I'm saying? And the king granted them, look down there at the bottom, according to the good hand of my God upon him. You see this? He's asking for uh, uh, you know, the time, he's asking for the permission, he's asking for the protection, he's asking for the supplies. What do you guys, you guys know this? The Bible tells us we have not because we ask not. The Bible also says that he will give us abundantly above all that we can ask or think. You understand that Nehemiah didn't have permission or protection or supplies or anything. He had to ask for them. And that's the same thing you have to do and I have to do. Do you want the things of the Lord? You got to ask for them. You got to keep asking for them and he'll give. Then I went to the governors. This is an account of the journey in the region beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. And the king had sent captains so they're on their way back to Jerusalem. When, listen to this, Sanballat, the Horonite. What is a Horonite? It's a pagan god follower of the god Horon that was in Palestine. So this Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammon, or Ammonite. Who are the Ammonites? You should really know this if you're following the Old Testament. An Ammonite was a descendant from Lot. They're related to Israel, but they're always enemies. This is modern-day Jordan, What's the capital of Jordan? What? Ammon. So here you go. And the official heard it, and they were deeply disturbed that a man had come to seek the well-being of the uh, children of Israel. Now listen, folks. Listen, listen. If you are one who recognizes your life is in ruins, so to speak, and you care, and you begin to pray, and you repent, and you confess, and you come back, and your humility, and you're receiving grace from the Lord, and the Lord and you are starting, and you know, the Lord is starting to rebuild the gates of your life, guess what immediately is going to happen? The enemy of your soul is going to show up. Because he doesn't want you to rebuild or build. He wants the, okay, listen, if he can't stop salvation, He's going to stop effectiveness and testimony said that nobody else hears. So you, when you decide, have decided with the Lord that you're going to, man, my home life is a wreck. I'm going to do whatever you ask me, Lord, to come back. Or my thought life is a wreck. Or my pornography problem is a wreck. Or my alcohol problem is a wreck. Or my gossip problem is a wreck. Or my fear is whatever it is. I don't know. But once you say it, there's, the enemy is going to show up because he doesn't want you to do it. 
You know there's one other reason. You're going to have to track with me now. But this could be the most important thing you hear tonight, maybe. Maybe I say that a couple times. There's another reason the enemy shows up right here. You want to know why? Here's why. Because on March 14, 1445, this king gave the commandment to Nehemiah to rebuild and restore the wall. That was the date, March 14, 445 B.C., which is an extremely important date because Daniel 9 says this. You ready? Daniel. It's, another, it's a prophet. Daniel says, from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until the Messiah, the prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. 69 weeks of sevens, which is 483 years. Listen, this is almost too hard to believe if you aren't a Christian by the Holy Spirit. From the time you see in verse 8 there, March 14th, 445 B.C., if you calculate the days of 483 years using the calendar that they use, 360, not 365, you, listen, listen. It says, from that date till the Messiah comes, will be that many days. If you do the calculations, I got the book. I just found the book. Guy does the, the calculations in this book. That day is the exact day that Jesus rode in on a donkey, 483 years later, the exact day. Daniel prophesied it. Listen, Nehemiah was there when Artaxerxes commanded it. God made it happen. That's important. So that's why the enemy's there. Now listen, so I came to Jerusalem, was there three days. Then I arose in the night, verse 11, and a few men with me. I told that no one, my God, put them in my heart to do at Jerusalem. Nor was there any animal except the one on which I rode. And I went out by night through the valley gate to the serpent well and the refuse gate. Hey, you got the gates. Can I put these up? Is somebody back there? Are they awake? Good. I don't know. Is this thing on? Okay, here's the gates. And viewed the walls of Jerusalem. But before you look up here, notice what he does again. Before the rebuilding, he goes out at night and he looks around. He takes a real long, hard look at the destroyed walls. Here's what he's saying. If you got some problem, something's in ruin, again, don't hide your head in the sand. Don't justify. Don't excuse Go examine it. Know the extent of the problem. Face up to the facts. Acknowledge it to yourself and to others that this wall is broken or down. And don't cover over. It, if you do, if you cover over, if you justify excuse, you're stopping or stunting the recovery program of God. Are you catching me? So he goes out, he sees them. Okay, go down to verse 17. Then I said to them, you see the distress that we're in, how Jerusalem lies waste, and its gates are burned with fire. Come and let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we no longer be a reproach. And I told them of the hand of my God, which had been good upon me, and of the king's word that he had spoken to me. So they said, let us rise up and build. And then they set their hands to do this good work. Look at this. Here it comes. But when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite, and Geshem the Arab, all enemies... Heard it, look at what the enemy will do. If you say, if you say, if you say, 
I'm going to rebuild this area of my life in cooperation with the Lord, and you set to do it, and you start to go down this road. Listen to this. The enemy of your soul is going to laugh at you and mock you. What do you mean? Tell other people you're a gossip. That's stupid. No one's even going to care. That's what's going to happen. That's going to some of the thoughts that are going to come in your head. You might even get people who say this stuff to you. What do you mean your drinking's causing a problem? Bible says don't be drunk with wine, but be being filled. Be filled with the Spirit. Don't let anything control you other than the Spirit of God. I don't know what that is, but don't let anything not just alcohol, whatever it is. Don't let anything control you other than the Spirit of God. That's what the Bible says. And the enemy's going to say, come on, man. I know you're the pastor, but you're on vacation. Nobody will know. Who's going to know? That's what they'll say. And he says, uh, what is this thing that you're doing? Will you rebel against the king? So I answered and said to them, the God of heaven himself will prosper us. Therefore, we as servants will rise and build. But you have no heritage or right or memorial in Jerusalem. Okay, rebuilding the wall. Real quick, I'm not going to read through here. I'm just going to tell you about all the different gates. You see the sheep gate right there? If you come to Israel with us, we're going to walk right through that thing. It's called the lion's gate right now. The Kidron Valley is over here on the right. The Mount of Olives is up here. The temple, you, you walk this way towards the temple. Uh, back here was where the upper room was, back over here somewhere. Um, Mediterranean Sea, obviously over there. Dead Sea that way. Galilee up there. And that Sheep Gate, look at this, says that these Israelites rebuilt these gates. I want you to notice something. The sheep gate is mentioned first and last. We'll talk about them in a minute. The sheep gate did not have any bars or bolts. Everyone, every other gate had a bar and a bolt or bars and bolts. That's important. Why? Because what does the sheep gate represent? Not to over-spiritualize this, but the Bible says these are pictures and types these Old Testament things, of course, when you're rebuilding your life, these are what Christians center their life on. And the most important thing, the first thing is the sheep gate. All the iniquities, Isaiah 53, was laid upon him. His, his cousin said, you're the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Sheep speak of sacrifice which reminds us of Jesus, the ultimate sacrifice. And this speaks of the cross at work and the cross life. You must, we must, as Christians, if we're to rebuild our life, kill the self-life, crucify the flesh. Remember, the Bible says you're not your own, you're bought with a price. The price is the blood of Jesus Christ. Sheepgate, they fix it first. Watch what they do next. They go to the fish gate. Now it's called the Damascus Gate. You're going to go there. The Damascus Gate was where fishermen from Galilee and the coast brought fish in through this gate. The Bible says when you surrender your life to Christ, you're going to become fishers of men. Matthew 4, 19. You want to rebuild your life? Tell other people about Jesus. Not out of a forced obligation, but out of a flow of life that's coming in and through you. Catching it? Sanctification. Number three, the old gate, which is near the present-day Jaffa gate. You'll go to the Jaffa gate. 
Jeremiah 6, 16 says this, ask for the old paths, ask for the good way, and walk therein. In other words, watch getting caught up in all the newfangled toys of Christianity, rock walls, cell phones, blah, 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 and come back to the old ways. What's the old way? Studying the word of God, being in fellowship, being in prayer and praise, breaking bread together, whether that be communion or fellowship, and if I didn't say prayer, prayer. That's Acts 2.42, folks. You don't have to pay for a marketing study to know what the Lord's agenda is for your church. Here it is in Acts 2.42, one verse. Go back to the old ways. Okay, here's the next one they repair. The valley gate. It's the southwestern corner of Jerusalem. What does a valley represent? It represents humility and trial. One, we have to be humble. God resists the proud. But remember this. The Bible also tells us don't be surprised by fiery trials. First Peter, and to count it all joy in the trials because God's producing eternal qualities in you, sanctification, valley gate. Oh, here's maybe the most important one. Isn't this funny? The dung gate. This is where they took, took the dung out of the city. It was a really gross place, but it had to be done. The refuse had to be taken out of the city and brought to the garbage dump in the Hinnon Valley. That's, it's the elimination gate. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 7 that we're to cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and the spirit. And guess what comes right after that? They go hand in glove. The fountain gate. The fountain gate's at the end of the pool of Siloam in the valley in the south. It speaks of a fountain springing up. Listen to this. In John 7, 38, Jesus said, if you want real life, you could have life by the person and work of the Holy Spirit. As he comes into your life, there's rivers of living water. But guess what happens, has to happen first for the water to flow? You got to get rid of the dung. <laughs> the filthiness. Don't cover up. Admit Repent, confess, and move on in the power of the Lord, and he'll bring rivers of living water flowing out of your life. What was the next gate? Chapter, verse 26 of this chapter, the water gate. It was lo located at the spring of Gihon, where Hezekiah's tunnels begin. You'll go there to this gate, by the way. Later on, Ezra's going to read the law of God, but what does water speak of in the Bible? Water is the word, God's word. Wash your wife in the water of the word. Remember that? Get involved in the word. Know the word. What's the next one? Verse 28, the horse gate. The horse gate speaks of war or battle. We're in a spiritual war. The Bible says that we don't fight flesh and blood. Remember that. We fight spiritual war. Now, listen to this. Here comes the east gate. Is it up there? Yes, east gate. The Muslims closed it off. They've cemented it in. Guess what they've put in front of it? A cemetery. Why would they do that? Because they know the scriptures that say through the east gate, when Jesus comes back a second time, he's going to go through that gate. What, why do I tell you that? Because we must live with the hope that Jesus is coming back. The Bible says that's a purifying doctrine. Get it? Sanctification. The inspection gate, is it up there? That's the Mifkod thing. 
Inspection means the appointed place. It's appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. Do you go somewhere after you die and then get several more chances? No, the Bible says it's appointed once to die and then the judgment. But for the Christian, you're not going to be judged for your salvation. That's somebody who's a non-Christian. They'll be at the great white throne judgment. Listen to this. For the Christian... You're going to be judged based on what you have. You're going to be at the Bema Seat judgment. How great of a steward were you? Uh, uh, the Bible says uh, in 1 Corinthians 3, 8, and 14, everyone shall receive commendation. This is the giving of rewards. The Mifkod gate. And then in this chapter, you can read it for yourself, it winds up by going and getting us back to the sheep gate. The Christian life that's being uh, rebuilt always begins and always ends and everything in between with the life, or excuse me, the death and life of Jesus Christ. And remember, the sheep gate, sheep gate had no bars and no bolts. What does it mean? Everybody's welcome. Isn't that amazing? You say, is this some exclusive club? Why are there only 20 people in here? Is it you guys just exclusive or something? No. Jesus says, come, come, come. The problem is a lot of people aren't listening or don't hear. Okay. I'm closing right here, but I want you to see one other thing. All the Israelites participated. All of them. The Bible says, you know this, right? The Bible says, that in putting our lives back together, we all need one another. We all need one another. We're part of a body. You know, there's, Ray Steadman says there's two things you can't say anymore as a Christian. You know what the first thing you can't say anymore? You don't need me. I'm not needed around here. It's not what the Bible says. The Bible says you are needed because everyone's a part of the body of Christ. And the other thing you can't say is I don't need you. You can't say it anymore. You're part of a body. All of them participated. All were volunteers. And then last thing I want you to see. Oh, yes, Jerusalem Fund. The last thing I want you to see. If you read this, listen, listen. They all rebuilt where they lived. They all rebuilt right around their own homes. If you read this, they didn't stray down the walls very far. They would actually build, rebuild where they were, and then if they had time and wanted to help, they'd go down and help. But they started where they lived. All right, I've gone long enough. But here's what I want you to know is that the Lord has victorious Christian living, streams of living water flowing from you or for you. He wants you to live like that. And he doesn't just want the pastor to live like that or the, you know, the assistant pastor or the worship. He wants us all. I want you to see something else. The pastor is not to be doing everything, not because <laughs> I'm stressed and I don't want to do everything, The Bible says we're all a body and we all have a part and we all should jump in and we all should be pulling in the same direction and we all should be building in our own lives but corporately too for health and strength and vitality. You got it? 
And so I encourage you, as we move out of here, I'll pray. Uh, if you have any questions, I kind of went fast. Come up here and talk with me. If not, um, uh, you know, God bless you guys and uh, have a great week. But uh, this is powerful, man. The Bible, when you see it in these ways, is not just something put together. It's spirit-inspired. Let's pray. Well, Lord, thank you so much for this evening, and thank you for these people. And I just ask, Lord, that you'd show us how to rebuild our lives. Lord, how to build our lives uh, based upon the cornerstone, the rock, Jesus Christ. And then, Lord, I pray that you'd give us spiritual health, peace, and strength, and freedom, and joy, and long-suffering, and kindness, and self-control, and anything else, Lord, you tell us in your word or have for us. Lord, help us to be honest with ourselves. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.